You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Greening the Apocalypse. We're back from our summer break for one more year, 2018. We've been third year in, fourth year in. We've done three years, yes, and we've been filling this time slot with our attempts to kind of shine a rickety old torch into the future and look at the mega trends that seem to be threatening the happy consumer motorist lifestyle, you know, things like climate change and resource depletion. And we've been looking a little bit recently at economic bubbles and those issues and even technological things like AI. And we kind of waver between depression and anxiety. And then, like, we speak also speak to excellent people doing local things that are reacting to those issues and doing some incredibly positive things. And we intend to continue in that realm for one more year. Well, I am Adam Grubb. Bushy's away. He's in post-op recovery. I seem to remember he overshared the details of his affliction last year. But anyway, let's not go there again. Uh, Really wishing you a quick recovery, Bushy. He'll be probably away for a couple of weeks at least. In the studio is the rest of the team, though. Shark puncher Sarah Coles, how are you? Um, <clears throat> I am. I became a rev head during the break. Yes, maybe do tell. I'm into car culture now. You really? know, because I changed the radiator in my car, <laughs> and I liked it. Nice work. But no, I'm, I rode my bike here. But I did see how fixing an old car is very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yep. Speaking of rev heads. Electric woman, <laughs> Kate Dundas. How are you electric doing? woman. I'm very well, thank you. I feel like an imposter sitting here in Bushy's seat at the end of the curving desk. Yeah. But yeah, very happy to be back. It's nice to see you all. Missed your faces over the past couple of months. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> yeah. Just taking in the faces for a moment of radio <laughs> silence. <laughs> and smooth operator, Jed McCartney, how are you going? I'm well. It's nice yeah. to have everyone back. And Did you take a break? Uh, I've probably been here once a week Yeah, across the break. I did um, a summer show with Dan Warner on yeah. Sunday Arvos and that was, that was nice. That was a, just music and, um, yeah, so that was, that was a good time. Yeah. I feel guilty. I'm using your microphone, Bushy. Can you still smell him? Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I was, I was looking at um, three of our shows from last year and there's some really incredible ones. Like, I'm pretty proud of what we did. But it did take us a few weeks to sort of get our shit together. Hopefully we can do a bit better this year. I was um, 
furiously texting uh, Cam from Eat It on Sunday because they were talking about um, Tim Flannery's book. <coughs> on, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, with the seaweed and, and, and he's going, oh, that'd be really interesting. I'm going, Cam, Cam, get on the podcast and have a listen. <laughs> that was definitely a highlight, yeah. having Tim Flannery in the studio. Yeah. It came up, you know how <clears throat> Facebook does the creepy thing where it's, it just invents your life for you and it's like, hey, today's Friends Day for you and then gave me a photo from my Facebook feed but it was the one of Tim Flannery when he came on the show. Oh, yeah. And I was like, Tim Flannery's not really my friend. Like, he didn't eat the cake that I made. I don't really know him. It just seemed like, it just seemed no, all wrong he mu- somehow. He must be Can a you make Facebook another cake, Sid? Yeah, I'll make you a cake. Tonight, don't have a guest. We have us. People it's not have, enough. No, it's, it's pretty sketchy, to be frank. <laughs> Uh, but one of the things we used to do on the show and some people really miss was that we would normally start the show with a segment we called What Caught My Eye and we'd just throw in a few articles or personal experiences that had influenced us in the previous week. Well, we've had two or three months off the radio for things to affect us or pass our eyes, so we're just going to do a whole show of it. Do you feel like um, jumping in first, Jed, with... Uh, what caught your eye? Yeah, I guess the um, the the thing that's caught my eye over summer, apart from some of the obvious stuff this week um, with politicians, but um, is that the the whole mood around Adani seems to have changed and changed for the better. You know, the the Queensland Lib- uh, Labor Party, uh, who you know, in government, are now saying, "Oh, we we think these figures, the the employment figures, are shonky," mm. um, and they're making lots of noises about not backing it. And because it's becoming an issue in the um, Northcote by-election, even Bill Shorten's come out at. at federal level and mm. said, no, we don't believe the figures and federal Labor won't back it. And then I read today that whoever was supposed to be building the the train line to Abbott's Point or wherever is not building it, that, that company's not doing it. So it may still go ahead, but they're not doing it. So, yeah. you know, finding another major company to build a, a railway line, yeah. it's all getting harder and harder and it all seems less likely, which is really good news, I think. Yeah. We did one or two shows on that in the last yeah. 18 months on the ridiculousness of that enormous coal mine in Queensland mm. and that the job figures were uh, completely overblown for political reasons and there was yeah. going to be automated trucks and things. So the whole thing in retrospect seems like what was the... Yeah, why, what the was point, it all about? The amount of hype and um, and business trips and and huge public you know yeah. meetings and and TV advertisements to get it happening and, and it, it seemed, seemed even the business model wasn't yeah it seemed obvious very good to, from the start to you know the layperson that it, it wasn't a good idea so you sort of wonder why it was why it was happening yeah well. Mm. But I really hope you're right because that would be – it did just, just seemed like it was going against the flow of environmental, economic and common sense, all at, um, good ideas all at once. Yeah. 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 So that is incredibly so, good news. Good news for change. Yeah. Thank you, Jed, for bringing it. Um, okay. Me? Yeah. Me? What caught your eye? Oh, many things. But one thing was I met Michael Abelman from Soul Food Farms, which is this really amazing project in um, Vancouver. It's like a 3,000 acres on steroids for profit 
and jobs. 3,000 acres being the project of which you're involved in putting food in public, or growing food in public places. Yeah, so repurposing land that's being un- underutilised mm. for the purposes of growing food. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry, I got a bit of a cold. And 3,000 acres uh, mission has always been about making it easier for more people to grow more food in more places, um, with a focus on community gardens and allowing the community access to land to grow stuff. Whereas Soul Food Farms, their driving mission is about creating jobs and growing heaps of stuff and selling it. And they create jobs for people who wouldn't normally be employed. So lots of um, addicts and people in difficult situations. And they turn these people's lives around by giving them meaningful work that's really, you know, decently paid. Mm. And it was just absolutely brilliant hearing from him. He's so inspirational. He's managed to smash down all of these barriers to do with like capital funding and um, and the difficulties of providing employment for people who sometimes don't turn up for work and his opinion on that is but they will eventually and when they come back we just have to welcome them back and work with them mm. so it's a really difficult um, HR model <laughs> <laughs> but one that he believes in so much and one which has really amazingly positive impacts on people's lives so it made me think maybe there's a new model for us for 3,000 acres in the future that looks to do something around jobs and real high-value production uh, as well as doing the community connection stuff. But he was talking about skills gaps. So he's a farmer. Mm. He's got a family farm. He knows how to grow stuff. He knows how to grow a lot of stuff in a small space and mm. have high-yield, high-value product to sell to restaurants. And... <clears throat> We're not, we in Australia and probably globally, it's probably an issue everywhere. We're losing all that knowledge a fair mm-hmm. bit. We know that farmers are all very Average old. Average age is 60, 60 plus. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's some people coming in underneath that, but there isn't that real commercial, technical farming knowledge in the city. Yeah. There's a bit, you know, there is, it obviously exists, but it's not accessible to where the people who want to learn are. Yeah. Hi. Wow, sounds incredible. And it's working, this thing. It's, it's working. It sounds like on paper. In Vancouver. Might not. It's working, yeah. It's yeah. working really well. They fundraise. They don't make all the money that they need from um, from their revenue model, so from selling the fruit and veg. But he thought they could do if they didn't, if they employed a you know, uh, a more stable workforce. Yeah, yeah I was going to say if they um, had people that turned up all the time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. they've got lots of issues like that to contend with and lots of um, other associated issues around losing things and things being stolen because they're in uh, neighbourhoods that things get stolen from. Really amazing guy, though, really interesting. Yeah. Really positive about the ability to change ingrained policy and things that don't work. So I really enjoyed it very much. He, he was out for the Sustainable Living Festival, was he? Yeah, so Milkwood had brought him out for the Sustainable Living Festival and some. he's doing heaps of workshops. He was really tired this morning, poor yeah. guy. But he's going to do a workshop in Adelaide tomorrow. He'd done a, one yesterday at Series, I think. Or, yeah, it was yesterday. And maybe something in Sydney. So he'd been travelling around Australia talking about this model that they use in Vancouver. So they've designed their own planter boxes and they've designed, they've thought about everything that they need. Very, very similar to the way 3,000 acres works. So to avoid contamination issues, to avoid land tenure issues, it's easier to have raised 
bed that you can move mm. and I know Adam there's um, issues around the longevity and the input and resource that that needs but it's it's a way to actually get things done. Yeah. So would you be able to transform 3,000 acres into his model, do you think? I think with lots of support from other people. Mm. <laughs> there's, we've, we've learned heaps about how to access land and there's still value in what we do for the community. Yep. But in order for us to make be more sustainable financially, I think there's definitely opportunity to expand and change direction in partnership with you know training providers and... Uh, councils, state government, <laughs> everybody. Mm-hmm. Collaboration. Wow. Feeling inspired. Have I got time to do my article as well? Did I just talk? Yeah, you got long? time. No. What else you got for us? <laughs> yeah, what is it? So, I have an article that I saw in the Guardian a couple of days ago called "How Do You Build a Healthy City?" I'm like, how do you build a healthy city? I need to know that. I'm working here, <laughs> trying to do it. So. Um, There's an article about how Copenhagen managed to turn itself around and build a healthy city. But I scrolled down to the bottom to look at the comments and they were like, why are all these London Guardian editors and journalists so obsessed by Copenhagen? It's not that great. So, yes. It's because of Borgen. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that great, but it's pretty good. Right. It's pretty good. Have you been there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Isn't it the bicycle infrastructure mm. of Copenhagen is a main driving force? Some of it. Yeah. I'll tell you about it. Yeah, tell us. The Guardian told me all about why it was so healthy. Um, my mother-in-law is Danish, so we've been a few times, and we used to go on trips doing landscape architecture from Scott, mm. from England to Denmark to look at all of their fantastic bike paths and other gorgeous landscapey stuff. So uh, people swim in the harbour. Have you have you been? Mm-mm. So. The, it's, a, it's around I a harbour. I have all of Borgen, though. Oh, waterways. <laughs> I haven't seen Borgen. I don't know what that is. Well, so. It's a Danish political drama. Uh, oh, is that the one with the good jumpers? No, um, that's the killing. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> does so, have really good snack food, though. If you're going to watch Borgen, cook a nice meal first and have it ready so you're not jealous. Do they, uh, sausages? Uh, they actually eat a lot of Danishes. They eat a lot of um, pastries. Yeah. apples as well, I think. <laughs> There we go. So Copenhagen's built around a harbour, a river, and people are in that swimming. So it's like people swimming in the Yarra, Mm. in the city centre. Get out. Every day they're in there freezing cold, swimming, swimming. And And not having a debilitating disease. Well, it used to be really grimy and disgusting. And they've had all of these long-term policies in place to get all of the polluting industries not um, Mm. discarding all of their crap into the river. So it's all really nice and clean now and really, really well used. So there's heaps of places you can get in, you know, steps down and little decks and, you know, but there's How still big ships. How long is summer? It's like about... Really short. Yeah. <laughs> but they still get in there in the um, in the wintertime too. Uh, they've got packed bike lanes. Everybody cycles pretty much. Although I think it's evening off a little bit now, but they've got a really good percentage of people on bikes lots to do with the infrastructure but this article was saying copenhagen consistently sits at the very top of the un's happiness index and is one of the star performers in the healthy cities initiative of the world health organization then it goes on to talk about why so was it always this way uh i don't think so they've Mm. had they've had a lot of policy in place with regards to things like removing car parking so Mm. rather than 
removing heaps of car parking at once and creating more open space. They do it little by little. They're like, oh, let's test taking cars out of this street. Mm-hmm. We'll just shut it for a while and then it's shut forever. Yeah. And they've done lots of th- lots of incremental things like that that have made it what it's like now, a great mm. place to cycle, great place to walk. Um, but they, what this article talks about is that the policies and stuff have done so much to put the infrastructure in place, but they make sure it's the e- like getting on your bike should be the easiest thing to do, the most convenient thing to do. Mm. So it's all very well doing behaviour change work and trying to say, you should get on your bike because it's good for your health. People don't do that because it's easier to get on the train or get in the car. In Melbourne, it's very uh, unhealthily easy to get in your car and drive. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Copenhagen, it's the easiest choice is to get on your bike. And that's what makes people change their mind about how to do stuff. Yeah. You have to make it the most convenient and easiest. In Borgen, I don't know how real it was, but the Prime Minister rode her bike to work. True. I don't know if that's based on truth or not. Ah. I think it would be. Imagine if our Prime Minister rode to work. And Tony Abbott used to. Did he? And his little budgie smugglers. <laughs> Let's not imagine that. <laughs> Whenever I've seen it, there's always heaps of... Like, I, I haven't been there, but I've, any footage I've seen, there's heaps of people just cruising around on bikes and walking, and you, there's noticeably almost no vehicles, it's really... There's a very different cycling culture. Like, I commute to work and I notice... I, t- I count all the men often. There's just way more men than women. And most people are in sportswear or lycra. And there's hardly anybody just looking like a normal person on a normal bike. Whereas And, and their commuters go flat knacker. And they chase each other. Yeah, it's like there's a... You know, they call it the commuter Olympics. Yeah. And, and they are. They're going really fast and they're really driven. I've been... Um, riding a bit in the mornings and coming home and I'm coming home against the commuter traffic and they're crazy. It's like their life depends on getting to work a minute faster than yeah. yesterday. And you're The right. culture in Copenhagen is really different to that. So it's just yeah. lots of normal people on bikes, all different ages, all genders, old crappy bikes going pretty slow. Yep. Um, I love and seeing an old person with a good upright posture yeah. And no helmet yeah. <laughs> on a bicycle. <laughs> and I just feel a, a glow of warmth when I see but that. I remember that, that was one of my first impressions of Milan, these people yeah. in immaculate clothes, men and women, you know, so in suits or, you know, just they look like they were going to a dinner party and they're just cruising along on their bikes at, at about, <laughs> wouldn't have been even probably 10 k's an hour on their yeah. way to work. Yeah. They There's a dignity so to elegant. that. Yeah. yeah. So the, another example of something they've done to make it really easy to cycle is put uh, bins in. So cy- people like to drink coffee on their bikes. And then they've got these bins that are tilted so, so cyclists can chuck stuff into the bins. Okay. And they have things like when you stop at lights, you can easily put your foot down. You don't have to do your balancey thing or get off. So just lots of little things that make it the easiest choice <laughs> and that the infrastructure is there to make it the easiest. But this article goes on to talk about beyond cycling, there's... Yeah, there's clinics that help you manage your stress. And you also pay 60% in tax. So they talk about how you're investing in health and well-being. Mm. And that money is going into lots of infrastructure, lots of service and product to actually buy your mm. health and well-being through the tax system. So it mm. seems to be working. Right. Well, that will be an excellent segue to my what caught my eye, which also involves happiness indicators and all those kind of things and a very different part of the world. 
This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You are on Green the Apocalypse on 3RRR. We're doing a What Caught My Eye show, which is where we just talk about some crap we saw. So I was um, reading an article today about a report that came out in um in a journal called nature sustainability last week and there's a whole website that supports this and it's called a good life for all within planetary boundaries and it looks at most countries in the world and it compares the quality of life indicators so things like um, the education, pe- people's self-reported life, satisfaction, democratic quality, ramen, equality, access to ramen. <laughs> um, that probably actually has a negative impact with regards to uh, nutrition, which is one of the indicators. Uh, and then it compares that country's uh, ecological footprint in the realms of land use change, freshwater use, excess nitrogen and phosphorus leakages and carbon dioxide emissions. Australia, unsurprisingly, has very good um, social situations or well-being situations. In fact, it's across the board it gets a tick for everything relative to other countries. You could quibble about, you know, at what level you consider someone's reported life satisfaction. Um, in Australia, people say that they are 7.4 out of 10 on the Cantrell scale, which is a measurement of how happy you are and satisfied with your life. Who did they ask? Sorry. Oh, it's just a random sample. Yeah. Yeah. But we are, on the other hand, well beyond... The, ba- the biophysical boundaries of sustainability on every single indicator except for freshwater use. Although that's hard to believe. That's when the, really when hard the, to believe. Yeah, when the Murray's running dry yeah. half the time. All that irrigation. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, it, it, the sad thing is there's actually no country in the world that meets their criteria for having for meeting people's well-being while also existing within a sustainable um, footprint. Do, do any come Vietnam, close? Vietnam's the one that comes closest. It's The only one that's over sustainability-wise is CO2 emissions. Uh, and it hits six out of the 13 indicators for the, social, for the threshold for what they consider well-being. So even there, it's not like anywhere near in some ways. But then I realised... I was just in a country that's not in this but does routinely top an equivalent type of study which is called the Happy Planet Index. Um, Actually, last year it came in at number four and that is Vanuatu. It's probably like too small to even make it onto this other study. And it's got a very low environmental impact per person but GDP is something like one-twentieth of Australia and there are a whole lot of concerns, you know, like there's no universal health care and getting sick's terrible. Um, but people's self-reported happiness is extremely high. Actually, less than Australia, but um, relative to... If you're turning resources into happiness, like when you're living on just a fraction of the resources, they're almost as happy as we are in a self-reported sense. And so it was interesting to reflect on 
And I do speak about travelling with a certain amount of shame because I... It's the first time I've flown since we started this show. But anyway, I went there and I'm going to, I'm going to own up to it. Is there a but, link between how happy people are in Vanuatu Yeah. and that you said they have a fruit that's a cross between an apple and a mango? Yes. They call it, well, no, it's, well, they call it an apple mango. It's a mango that they call apple mango. But it's, it's like a crunchy, crunchy mango. mango. Yes. So that probably is something it's to do with It's a pretty major factor. Because you, as you said, I would say fruit you in love general. the crunch of the apple and the flavour of the mango. And this brought them together. If, yeah, if I could go to a tropical island, which I did, and have one fruit, which I did, <laughs> it would be the apple mango. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there was like a lot of fruit there. Um, yeah, and it is like one of the most fertile and beautiful places on the planet. Uh, and it's it's not it's not had major upheavals. Okay, well, yes, in some ways there's been uh, missionaries and disease and uh, blackbirding with people taken away into the cane fields um, in slave-like conditions going back to the early part of last century. And, yes, there's been... But there's also been a lot of continuity and maintenance of family connections. And I spent a bit of time in Malay Village, which is an extensive village, thousands of people outside of Villa. And even there where it's, like, larger than a natural tribal kind of village size, there's local chiefs, you know, in the little suburbs and heaps of... You're living on top of each other in your extended families with little houses all next to each other. And Vanuatu's got a reputation for a, a conversational, problem-solving uh, society where when there's an issue, you get together and you talk about it and you respect your elders and they have things to say. And so it's got a kind of like local, quite interactive, democratic type um, with authority figures, but uh, culture, which is probably a large part of it and no such thing as loneliness really. And things are really beautiful. And a lot of volleyball. That's, you know, very sporty, actually. Yeah, so they're exercising a lot and they've got a fruit that's a cross between an apple and a mango. Yeah, so there could be factors. And don't, at the meetings where everyone's being um, exercising their social rights, aren't they drinking, what is it? And there's kava. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think you drink kava at a meeting because it's a very, it's like a mild high, but one that doesn't make you especially, you just want to chill out in a corner, have a quiet conversation maybe. (laughs) But yeah, that's probably a factor too. (laughs) I also met while I was over there, the first ever apocalypse cult leader I've ever met, uh, a guy called, what's his name? Steve, he used to run an airline uh, in the 80s in the US, Steve Quinto. And he started, he's an American guy. He's about 80 now, self-styled. He, he mentioned that he feels a real kinship with Jesus. <laughs> Can you describe well, his look? Well, yeah. oh, he's Jesus-like, only 80 years old. And why was he there? Well, because Vanuatu is a very resilient landscape. Of course it's gonna, it is and it will suffer from climate change and there's some low-lying areas, but it's a volcanic country with beautiful, rich, free-draining red soils that just pump with plants and it's isolate he's really worried about economic collapse in the u.s leading to um social collapse leading to you know civil war and just breakdown of of the rule of law as he probably should be yeah maybe and but he's all you know mixes that with you know religious concerns and um and he's got a small group of followers who 
live in a very remote place called Edenhope. And <laughs> yes, he's he's trying to. Did you visit Edenhope? No, I didn't. He was in town. Was he trying to recruit you? No, I think he picked me as being somebody not gullible enough for his bullshit. Was he wearing white Because while I do agree pants? with some of his concerns, um, he definitely had the cult leader uh, tone where you you kind of do this. He's got his creation story where like trees speak to him, and he's a bit of a special guy, and um, and he'll just drop like one liners of pseudo wisdom like. Cooked food is as addictive as heroin, and then kind of like do this mic drop type thing and just <laughs> give you a few moments to bask in the wisdom. And I did find, and he's into breatharianism, and I found him pretty annoying to be honest. But it was, it was, you know, um, he was also going probably a tiny is it just bit, a tax write off, isn't he? A yeah. silver colloid. It is a, it is a bit of a tax. Where did, where did you? Haven. I'm fascinated by this. Where did you meet him? Because you. I actually went out of my way to me. Oh, did you? Okay. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. he's in I was in Santo, which is a pretty small place in the capital's Luganville, which is a bit of a kind of wild westy outpost of, you know, to maybe 3000 people, where occasionally incidentally this enormous cruise ship will come into town carrying, you know, five times the population of the town and it looks like a spaceship. It's white and clean. And uh, at night it's just blasting out lights and it's a little bit like Independence Day. You know, it's the scale of it. Imagine if like a 10-kilometre-long spaceship came over Melbourne Mm -hmm. and you were just like, whoa, they're definitely like more powerful than us. But then the aliens get out of these (laughs) spaceships and they're just like maybe in the back of my mind I imagine Titanic and evening gowns and but, yeah, the they're kind of just like these uh, people that are sort of wearing their pyjamas or just, you know, these <laughs> dirty singlets and they're just kind of... The aliens came and they just schlub all down the streets. What schlub? Real, oh, they're just... They're, you know, schlubbing, they're just like... They haven't put any effort into their appearance oh, and they're just... Definitely not Titanic. No. Did your man manage to recruit anyone from any cruises? I, he's re- I think he's really going for naive types and particularly women of procreation age because he wants to repopulate the earth after the apocalypse with all the potentially i won't i'm not casting aspersions on his particular intentions but um (laughs) we should anyway that was my vanuatu experience in a nutshell and but you uh, didn't answer my question was he wearing white pants uh, he he does favour the light pants. Yeah, yes. I'm just suspicious of people that wear white pants huh. in particular. Okay, well, it turns out to be well founded. This is a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Well, you are on Greening the Apocalypse on Three Triple R, and we are doing a show about just shit we saw. On our break, first show back. What did you see, Sarah Coles? Um, on the break, I went to a talk by Peter McCoy, who is the author of Radical Mycology, a treatise on seeing and working with fungi. The, the, the mushroom enthusiasts tend to have quite a kooky kind of look about them. Does he fit that? Um, he looked to me like a good old-fashioned anarchist, uh-huh. just wearing a, like a, a, a baseball cap 
and a T-shirt. I think he might have had maybe a punky kind of hair thing underneath, but I didn't see him without his hat. Mm-hmm. But he um, – it was very interesting talk. Yeah. Um, he was mostly talking about fungal biology, ecology and the history of fungi. But what caught my eye was at one point in this talk he put up a photograph of what looked like building material and it was um, – it looked like it was a wall made of mycelium, which is the um, root part of the fungus. Mm-hmm. And that's what I got interested in because I was thinking, hang on a minute, could I insulate a tiny house with mushrooms? Yeah. Because I was like, could I push being a hipster that far? <laughs> no, <laughs> that would I was be the just, That was why. It was because wool's expensive and yeah, I was like, okay. oh, I wonder if it would be cheap to just grow mushrooms in the walls of a tiny house. What, what I don't get though, you have to grow it on a medium, right? It has to eat something for all those little fibres to grow through. Yes. And I, then the idea, but the idea with like insulation is that there's air no, in between the fibres. isn't the idea that there's not air? No, the, like... Pink bat, you know, all the insulation stuff, it's like the, f- the fibres, their main job is just to hold air ah, there. Ah, I see so. what you're saying. Well, um, I looked up how they do it. I yeah. didn't even know if it was a thing, mm. but it is. Um, I found these people called, it's a terrible name, e- Ecovative Design. I think it's meant to be like innovative, but it's ecovative. It's very hard to say, <laughs> ecovative design. And they built a tiny house using mycelium. Yeah. And they said... Um, just for the insulation. They didn't grow the whole thing. Yeah, just for the insulation. Yeah. So they used the mycelium to bond together agricultural byproducts like corn stalks okay. into a material that replaces plastic foam. And initially they were making eco-packaging. I remember hearing about that. Yeah. Um, and then they're like, oh, we should probably just start making um, walls. Yeah. And so they grow the mushroom insulation in between wood and then it forms an airtight seal. Okay. So maybe there is still air in there but it's sealed? I don't understand it. Anyway, yeah. uh, so I was, I was thinking about it and it sounded kind of cool because um, it's environmentally friendly and it's it's not very toxic and it, you know, there's lots of reasons it's great. But then I looked into um, the R value mm. and so the R value is an insulating material's resistance to heat flow. It's its thermal resistance. So the higher the R value, the better your insulation. Yep. And the mushroom insulation doesn't have a very good R value. Um so regular insulation, polystyrene insulation is like five per inch, but mm-hmm. mushrooms only about three. Yeah. And then wool comes in at above four. Yeah. So, so it's pretty average. And it's pretty average. It doesn't seem like it would be something that would necessarily last forever either. It reminds me of, you know, when you're, you've got a bit of a grubby bathroom or a leak in your bathroom <laughs> yeah. and little mushrooms start popping up. Would that start <laughs> that happening all no, over I your thought house? that as well because I was going, okay, because you, oh, I've lived in share houses where there's rising damp or you just feel like you're living in a land of spores and then you think that you have black lung and you, all the, you just get paranoid about the air quality. and But they sterilise it after mm. it's... Gr- it's sterilised so there's no spores and then after it's finished growing they steam it so it stops. Yeah. But it's still strange to think about. Yeah. So it's that not, doesn't sound like great. It's not growing in there. 
No, it's not growing in there. But, yeah, I wonder what the longevity of a mycelium wall is. Mm. But he must have had some good things to say too, right? It was fire retardant, oh, yeah. which is good if you're putting a tiny house uh, like outside of Castle, Maine in a fire-prone area probably, but then you could just drive away with it anyway. <laughs> so who cares about Leave that? early with your house. Beg your pardon? Leave early. Yeah, with your house. With your house. So... Tell, tell uh, me something good that he talked about. Good about, about it. Yeah. About, um, no, about what the talk oh, in general. Oh, about the talk. Yeah. Did he talk about edible mushrooms presumably? No, it, he talked about the full gamut of yeah. the application of mycelium. Bioremediation. Yeah, microremediation was right. one of the things that he talked about a yep. lot. What's that? Um, that's where they were, he, you can use, um, say, mushrooms to clean up a polluted area. It's they're very efficient at breaking down things like oils. Mm. Um, but he was good too because he wasn't he wasn't um, he hadn't drunk like the mushroom Kool Aid. Like he wasn't saying that you use mushroom for every application. He said in some instances bacteria is much better to use to clean up pollution. And he was very measured. Mm. And he'd written this gigantic book. About it. It started off, I first heard about him years ago. He wrote a zine about fungi. It was called Radical Mycology. Yeah. It was just this really small zine. And then since then, he's been on this odyssey and I think self taught and has learnt. Um, afterwards, I was talking to people and one of them said he, it's kind of amazing that he's dedicated probably 17 years or something to learning everything he can about this thing mm. and that he is now considered a world expert on it mm-hmm. and then they also had a he had a crowdfunding campaign for um they're making online courses about mycology as well available yeah which i look forward to learning more about that yeah have mm. you ever grown mushrooms to eat yeah we did that a lot when i was a kid yeah 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 i love mushrooms yeah did you ever grow them well, only those. Oh no, I've done shiitakes, but I haven't done the full process where you know harvesting the timber, um, getting the spores. Um, Did you just duck and, down to series and buy a log? Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's like the fast food of mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's pretty fun. You just you get this log and um, you got to keep it moist for a couple of months. But then uh, you dunk it in some water overnight and pull it out. And, yeah. for, and then within a few days, little shiitake mushrooms start to grow and it looks beautiful. What about... Um, you can have it in dark places in the garden, so... What about going for a little wander in some cow fields? Have you done that, looking for mushrooms? Oh, yeah, I love, I love going mushroom, wild mushroom hunting. Little yeah. pine plantations. Yeah. Yes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous sport if you don't know what you're doing because mushrooms I feel, can be... I feel like a pine mushroom is not dangerous. It is so easily identifiable. Oh, yeah, pine mushrooms are. That's like a very yeah. easy one for people to start with. Yes. If they want to eat wild forage mushrooms. Yeah, It's yeah. fluorescent orange and then it has the milky sap and the shape of it and it's gigantic. Oh, it's coming like, up to mushroom really season again. You really can't accidentally die, another... I don't think. In another month or two. Yeah, I can't two, wait. It's we'll, the best time of year. It will be autumn and after the rains we will be in so mushroom I think, heaven. I think I'll probably build a tiny house and then, uh, you know, when it comes time to insulate it, I'll just duck down to Pomonal and get some of Pomonal's finest wool, that is, <laughs> and then I'll probably just eat pine mushrooms in my house. Yeah. And that's it for mushrooms in that house. Could have a little mushroom basement and grow some to eat. It's true. There would be an underground area. That would be suitable for that. 
Well, you have quiet. You've got a vision. And, I have a vision. And I support that vision and I wish you all the best towards your <laughs> tiny house mushroom utopia. Um, I should, I've got a link I wanted people to know. For, this, my, for the online mycology courses that Radical Mycology are going to be doing, yeah. www.mycologos.world. So it's M-Y-C-O-L-O-G-O-S dot world. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.